I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to another episode of At The Margin. This episode is all about health economics, a topic which has been on my to-do list since I started the podcast. We give an introduction to health economics, what sort of healthcare problems economists can help with. We go through healthcare on the island of Ireland and compare the systems in place north and south. Finally, we discuss the future of healthcare on the island. So I've yet to introduce our guest. On this episode, we're talking to Professor Kieran O'Neill of Queen's University, Belfast. Kieran is a professor at the School of Medicine, Dentistry and Biomedical Sciences and is well known around the health economics community in Ireland. Many of you may know Kieran as co-organiser of the Ireland Masterclass in Health Economics. So this episode was recorded on a sunny summer's afternoon in Belfast. The window in Kieran's office was open and I think that was picked up on Kieran's mic so you can imagine us sitting out in the park, bringing some ASMR joy into your lives. Anyway, this is one of the most enjoyable chats I've had on the podcast. Kieran is a gent and had some very interesting things to say about the topic. And I hope you enjoy it too. Kieran, thanks a million for t- taking the time. It's great to have you. Um, we're talking about health economics, something that was on my list, uh, to-do list for a long time. Um, and uh, I suppose one thing we're going to discuss is the health systems on the island of Ireland. But uh, before we get into it, it'd be interesting just to talk about health economics in general. What is health economics? How you got into it yourself? Actually, I was talking to, to Graham Brownlow about a, a couple of weeks ago, and he said that I mentioned that I was going to talk at the, the health economics conference. And he said he'd worked with you when you were an environmental economic economist. Right. And I said, I'll have to find out when, when that was or how, how that switch came from environment to health. Well, uh, thanks for having me on, Nile, first of all, and uh, it's, it's good to contribute to this. It's a great initiative and a great thing that you have going here. So health economics is really a sub-discipline of economics. It's like any of the other branches of economics in some respects. So you have labour economists, you have environmental economists, as you mentioned, and uh, health economics is just, a, again, as I say, a sub-discipline of it. So we look at the application of economic economics to issues of health and healthcare, how we can use economic theory to sort of open up our understanding of it or explore interesting issues, test economic theories in it, do empirical analysis of, of uh, health data and healthcare utilisation data. Um, so that's really what it's about. Perhaps unlike some of the other aspects of economics or some of the other sub-disciplines, there's probably a lot more health economists in the UK and Ireland working in the area, and that's simply a function of the, the demand for them or the opportunities which exist for them. Yeah. So relative to environmental economists, for example, I think there's probably more people working in the area of health currently in in um, many of the high-income countries than would be the case, as I say, for environmental economics. Um, and again, we have developed or there has been developed certain techniques that would not be used outside of the area of um, health economics to the same extent or with the same degree of uh, prescription, if I can put it that yeah. way. So a lot of the stuff around health technology assessment, which obsesses a lot of the health economists, are sort of unique onto health economics. You wouldn't see them to the same extent outside of yeah. health economics. So one thing, now I know very little about health economics, but the one thing 
that I do know is, you know, like economists were always thinking about how to make the best use of limited resources. And then people would ask, well, why does an economist look at health? Well, I suppose you're looking at the fact that, well, we only have so many resources and then how do you get the best use of them? And then and there's all these different ways to quantify how you get the best use of them, things like quality of just the life years, all this sort of That's stuff. That's it. That's it. So it's, it, it, it is the same issue of scarcity and constrained optimization that you would encounter in other branches of economics. Mm-hmm. And in health economics, we are then interested in those same issues. So ordinarily, as you know, we would allow markets to allocate uh, resources and under certain conditions, they would achieve an optimal allocation in the sense of an efficient allocation of resources. But because of a variety of sources of market failure, markets tend not to work very well yeah. in, with respect to health care. And because of that, then we have uh, a demand for economists to inform uh, how resources might be allocated, and that takes you into that area of economic evaluation. Are we going to maximise the health gain from a given amount of resources? And a lot of the techniques then have developed to try and answer that question using things like quality-adjusted life years, such as uh, what you referred to there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I suppose one thing that, that health economists have to tackle is it's not like electricity where one year like there's not the same emotional attachment to electricity as there is to say healthcare, and it's I don't know like is there you have to detach yourself emotionally to a certain extent or you have to look at it through a different type of lens that maybe a delay person might look at it's uh, it's interesting in the sense that there exists a, a spectrum of views or at least I think there exists a spectrum of views with respect to the application of economic techniques in the area of health so you find some people who are um, I would say quite technocratic or dogmatic about how you apply it, that a quality is a quality regardless of who actually gets to consume it right. and would not be as um, perhaps uh, alive to equity issues or the potential for uh, qualities not to pick up all of the things which actually are of interest and of value to people. Yeah. So, but. You know, so some of the American economists, for example, would be open to talking about um, trade in human organs. You know, the, oh, yeah. the individuals should be allowed and able to sell a kidney and yeah. get whatever the best price they can get for that. And they would argue that um, you know they can see no reason why a poor person should be disadvantaged in being able to sell a kidney. Yeah. Whereas others perhaps from from this side of the uh, of the Atlantic may be more averse to the commodification of the human body in that way and talk about the 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 disadvantage of poor people may be in which may occasion them to be more um exploitable in terms of the sale of organs so it, it, there are actually a whole range of of interesting ethical issues which arise in the application of economics to health and healthcare. Yeah, and we touched on that, the whole kidney exchange thing, and, and we're talking about matching markets a few, a few good few episodes ago. But um, I th- does that work? Like, so if I want to donate a kidney to a, to my my family member, and I'm not a match, but I'm a match for from a stranger, and they're a match for my family member, we can sort of we can trade that way, and it's a better outcome. Even though it's it's essentially I'm donating to my family member but it's sort of going around about way and make that happen. those mechanisms exist and those make so that it wouldn't necessarily be you donating your organ as you say to a family member or prescribing who your organ can be donated to so you can go into a pool and you can have that yeah. sort of risk sharing uh, and you know ethically there'd be less uh, i imagine issues there than would be the case if it is you sell a kidney to a wholesaler for a given price who then sells it on in a market literally using money as yeah. an as a medium of exchange yeah uh, that's you're getting into a gray area there that, I suppose. That, that, from my perspective you are but from some other people's perspective yeah. you're not you you should because you are the owner as it were of your body be able to sell it in whatever way you want or yeah. in pieces i know that sounds ridiculous but there are people who argue for that yeah yeah so okay from the the high level perspective we have X amount of resources, we want to allocate them be- better. Health economists try and sort of figure out ways of doing that. But then when you dig in a bit deeper, um, I suppose there's little details that, that you might look at. I know some of your work, have you looked at things like cancer screening, all this sort of stuff? How does that fit into, say, for example, an economist? How does the, like, what's, where's the economics there, I suppose? So, th- again, there are a range of issues. And while the economists would be involved through that work on health technology assessment or 
cost-benefit analysis, if you want to, put, want to use a more usual term for it. Well, there's a range of work that a health economists would be involved in that. They're also involved in a whole range of other issues, such as the equity issue or such as how individuals respond to incentives. Yeah. And you can use economic techniques to try and understand that. But for screening, for example, you can apply cost-benefit analysis, health technology assessment, if we use that broader term, and to look at whether or not screening offers good value for money from a health system perspective or from a healthcare payer perspective. But equally, what you can also do then is to see what contributes to uptake of cancer screening. So for example, the role of, uh, we, we've done this with work uh, in, uh, or in work with colleagues from ESRI, um, looking at the role of private health insurance, for example, in uptake of cancer screening within, within uh, Ireland and demonstrated that it does have a very significant impact upon it. And then that opens up a whole range of issues as to why that should be the case. Is it because the information which comes from screening is of greater value to those who can expedite their journey through the care pathway towards treatment than those who may, because they don't have private health insurance, may experience barriers to the use of uh, hospital care, for example. Okay, very interesting. So it's more... The other side of economics, where we're sort of looking at why people make decisions and how we can sort of guide them in certain ways, or what sort of what's motivating different actions, getting under under the skin of that. That so is it, and that the, the, a lot of health, uh, not a lot of, but uh, a large number of health economists devote themselves to those issues, and uh, you can see in some respects uh, uh, a difference between what's done in the U.S. and what's done in the U.K. in terms of the work of health economists because of the way in which the systems developed separately and the role of um, the state being different in the two situations. So where you would have in the US less role for the government, uh, the government still has a major role, but less role for the government in the um, provision and financing of care than would be the case in Ireland or certainly within the UK. Um, you would have more of a traditional economic role in health economics in the UK and parts of Europe where you have a lot, much larger government role in funding and provision of care, then you have the role for economic evaluation. And then that then tends to dominate because that's what government funds and what government funds is what economists then tend to deliver. Can I, can I circle back but to one yeah. of the things that you actually raised at the outset and that was how I ended up in health yeah, economics? Yeah, sure, yeah. Because that then relates into environmental economics and, and why I was, I was working with um, your, your, your colleague maybe in, in the past or why yeah, he, yeah. he referenced environmental. So whenever I was doing my PhD, it was not on health economics at all. What I was actually looking at was the willingness to pay for freshwater angling in Northern Ireland, okay. which got me into non-market valuation. And then that technique, which was developed in the area of environmental economics, transferred over directly into health okay. whenever I started to work in health. So day one, or if not day one, certainly within the first month of me starting uh, in, in Queens many years ago, there was a request which came over. So I started in the Department of Economics, as it was then. Yeah. A request came over from this site that we're sitting on today doing the interview, the Royal Victoria site in Belfast. Uh, was there anyone interested in working in the area of health? And that's then. All right. I never worked in the area of the environment after that. Okay, I was just you're, pulled, you're in, pulled into health. You're headhunted, and that was it. That was it. It's funny you said that you took environmental techniques and applied them in health, because I took health techniques and applied them in environment. Okay. So I saw uh, Brendan Walsh, who you had worked with. I don't know if you were on that paper with him, but I saw him presenting at the IEA with uh, concentration indices, and I thought that could be really useful for looking at carbon taxes. So. Um, it's a nice, uh, it's a funny, it's a nice full circle but there. Th there's a lot of, uh, very often um, we will sort of adopt the techniques which have been developed elsewhere. So, for example, you, you'll see a lot of people using discrete choice experiments developed in environmental economics. They're now very popular in health economics. Health technology assessment is really cost-benefit analysis developed and, and, and re redesigned in environmental economics and yeah. um, contingent valuation. You know, and there have been efforts to actually deploy hedonic pricing and travel cost in the area of uh, health as well. Right, okay, very interesting. Um, now, before we move on to talking about the healthcare systems, one question 
like I was looking through your papers and there's so many. Is there anything that you could pick out to say that would be that you find quite interesting that is one of your favourite pieces of work that, that you think stands out as something that's quite... As you say, there's a range of things that I've done and that's because I'm sort of, you could say, promiscuous in terms of who I, uh, who I work with. So I work with that, that many different people and I tend not to say no very often when I should say no to the opportunities that present themselves. I'm very grateful for the opportunities that have presented themselves. So the work that does interest me, though, perhaps most is that which is on the sort of the borders of economics and other disciplines. And by that, I don't mean, you know, economics and cancer per se. Cancer is a disease, yeah. but rather the issues that present within cancer or the issues which present around decision making. So work which I have tended to go back into, uh, which repeats itself, if you like, over the course of my work, are, is things like um, people's attitudes to uh, assisted dying or people's attitudes to uh, end-of-life care and the implications those attitudes and decisions have upon the operation of the healthcare system and how healthcare resources are actually going to be utilised. Right. So you'll see in the, the sort of the back catalogue of my work, work in care homes, uh, work on attitudes to uh, assisted dying, um, proximity to death and healthcare costs, uh, those those sorts of things, and it's because of the the naughty issues that they throw up, yeah. and the opportunity to actually think a bit more or a bit more tangentially about yeah, things that, that's that really I interesting. find interesting. So, right, assisted dying, very I suppose people have very different views on 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 that, yeah. but um, it would. That link that you mentioned there is very interesting. So, in the case of, is it like if there's a consensus view to one way, then the the sort of the system would use use one way versus maybe a different way, or how does the how does well, the relationship work? Well, what I see as potentially happening is increased demand for the legalization of assisted dying, and the decriminalization of people who assist others in in dying. So if you watch uh, UK case law, you'll see a, you know, it's a recurrent theme where you have a very tragic case and someone taking a case to court and talking about their, their, their right to make decisions and have assistance with respect to it. And you could see, or at least I could see a situation in which as our healthcare system comes under increasing pressure, but also the, our ability to actually sustain life where the quality of that life to the person who experiences it may not be all that they want. Um, you could see a situation in which a pressure increases to afford individuals the opportunity to make those decisions. Yeah. But what you could also see is a situation in which those by virtue of creating the opportunity for that, by changing the law around it, you could also see a situation in which individuals become more vulnerable to being put under pressure to make those sorts of decisions, yeah. uh, to, um, uh, to terminate their life sooner than they would otherwise do so. And that's the sort of, uh, that's the sort of conundrum that you're in, where in some circumstances, individuals may because of the way in which we, are, we, we structure as a society and compel people almost to consume care um, versus a situation in which, we, because of how we might become structured as a society, we compel people almost to, as it were, do the honourable thing and, and not consume care. So there's a real, uh, a real challenge there and some, I can see uh, more time and effort having to be devoted to th thrash through yeah. those issues. I don't think there'll be an answer to them. No, uh, yeah, it, no, it is very interesting, but it does seem like a question that the economics toolkit is useful for answering because a lot of econo a lot of effort in like economic research is trying to pull out, you know, biases and these sort of things. And if you're trying to get at people's true what what the, the true preference, to, for want of a better word, um, as opposed to maybe if there's sort of pressure and are there circumstances where you can identify this effect versus the other effect and weed out the two different effects. Um, yeah, I, I, and again, to me it's interesting, and I don't want to sort of dominate the conversation but w with this, but the, yeah. to me one of the things that again is interesting is that people's attitudes are mutable. So you may have a particular position at a particular point in time and then that changes dramatically whenever you actually experience the condition. Yeah. So uh, 
interesting things like, you know, so whenever we were doing the work on quality adjusted life years in Ireland, so this was an attempt to establish preference weights for different health states. Yeah. One of the examples that we use, one of the standard examples that we use is um, the value of health to a person that's in a wheelchair. So it's called the wheelchair example. Right. And the, the idea here is that this might be a very extreme health state. But whenever you're actually dealing with people in that health state, as we found in the survey work that we did, mm. uh, I mean, I, I remember the feedback from the survey team saying, well, we interviewed uh, a guy in the wheelchair who reported having no mobility problems. So, yeah. you know, so what your health is, it, the value which you attach to different health states, the value which you attach to your health can change as you experience a different state yeah. and as you adapt to that state. Yeah, that is very interesting. I think I have heard in the past where if you get some sort of health shock, yeah, your your, your life satisfaction goes down, but it tends to go back, go back up again because I suppose you get used to it. And, and that is it. You know, you can find either um, value in the life that you have now compared to, the, to, to what you thought it was going to be if you actually experienced it. And again, another interesting example of this I encountered in work years ago dealing with um, people who had profound deafness. So it was children with profound deafness, yeah. but what you had was very different values being attached to interventions to address that among parents who were themselves profoundly deaf compared to those who weren't profoundly deaf, who were from a hearing background. Yeah. And those who were profoundly deaf viewed the health, sorry, the intervention as almost an attempt to sort of um, wipe out the deaf culture. You know, they had their language. Yeah, yeah. You know, whereas you were trying to give them something which was, um, maybe it had value, but the value to the deaf parent was not as great as what it was to those from a hearing parent you yeah. know, who, didn't, who didn't have the language, who didn't see it um, the same way as it didn't see being deaf in the same way as a deaf parent would. So again, very interesting issues and you get very different estimates of incremental cost effectiveness depending on which parents would have been involved. Right, very interesting, yeah, definitely something I wouldn't have <laughs> been aware of. Um, okay, so one thing you wanted to discuss was the health systems on the island and maybe the difference between north and south and uh, the first place I would start is thinking, well, well, if I had a blank slate, what's the problem that we're trying to address with terms of a health system? What, like what, what does a health system do? And it feels like well, I look through everything like an electricity market, but it's like you have a, you have a sort of a capacity issue, like a certain number of doctors and nurses in hospital buildings, and then you want to maximise the use of that so that you get the best value out of whatever capacity you have. And but then there are other issues in terms of you know how do you fund it? How do you ensure that it's used efficiently? these sort of aspects, would that be somewhere right or wrong? Or? It is, so uh, to my mind, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't claim to be any sort of an expert on the different healthcare systems and you know, how different healthcare systems perform, but I think all of the healthcare systems sort of face the same challenges, and it's all a constrained optimization issue. You know, they have limited resources, and what they're trying to do is to maximise the health gain that they get from those limited resources. Yeah. But then differences emerge between uh, between them and also how they adapt over time. So I remember years ago reading a series of papers which looked at path dependency and the application of path dependency um, to health and healthcare. And they were taking the different sort of healthcare systems that we see and saying, okay, so we end up with these different models of healthcare, you know, the social insurance system, the tax, the NHS type system, mm. um, and uh, national, uh, the national insurance systems, the different systems anyway, and how those actually came to evolve and then the differences between them. And it is, you know, you can see that, that you're constrained by past choices about how your healthcare system actually evolves. In terms of the health systems north and south, um, it's a fertile ground to exploit that natural experiment yeah. to see, because you have the same population essentially north and south, slightly different in terms of age distributions, maybe slightly different in terms now of the, um, the numbers of uh, migrants who will have moved in into the country. 
maybe slightly different now in terms of affluence compared to what it would have been in the past, but essentially the same population, north and south, populations who are served by different healthcare systems in terms of the structure and finance of them, mm -hmm. and then you can use that to see, well, you know, what's the GP use and what impact does GP on GP use does not having universal access have, or what impact on hospital care and does the way in which the system is structured here that is in the north where we're talking today compared to the way in which it's actually structured in the south and which performs well yeah. and on what metrics does it perform well so it's a fertile ground for, for research and it's great to see more people actually involved in it than what would have been the case in the past Sure, yeah So comparing north and south just for the layperson what, what is the basic difference between healthcare in the north and south or what's the sort of model uh, like the NHS model maybe for for somebody who won't be familiar. Okay, so for those who are not familiar with the NHS model, as, as, as we'll refer to it, what you have is care which is being paid for by the state and which is also being provided by the state. So yeah. that's the, the, big, the big difference. Now, having just described it that way, um, GPs are in actual fact self-employed or typically self-employed, but they're commissioned by the state to provide care to populations who are registered with them. In the south of Ireland, you have the system which has much greater emphasis on um, private health insurance. So you would have individuals who have uh, access to care which is paid for by the state and which can be delivered by the state or delivered privately. Um, if they have a medical card, then their care would be paid for by the state and they would, be, they would have access to the public health care system. But if they don't have a medical card, then typically they will either pay out of pocket to access the GP, for example, or they will use a private health insurance either to pay for access to the GP or, more likely, for the care which would be subsequent to the GP and pay the GP out of pocket. Yeah. And while in the South at the minute you have expanding access, you know, so, so uh, widening access, uh, greater universality, and that path being pursued, um, it's interesting that almost at the same time in the north we're going in the opposite direction where because of issues with the way in which our care is funded and delivered more people are actually taking out um, private health insurance to yeah. give them that expedited access to the hospital sector. So in Ireland, in Ireland in South, it's more a case of we're moving toward it's moving towards um more sort of public provision but in the north moving towards private provision what's driving that move towards private provision in the north or people lo looking for private services well uh, d to my mind it's the feelings of the system in the north which are driving that and what you will find what i think you will find is that it's the middle classes those who can afford to pay for private care uh, who are dismayed by the length and size of the waiting lists here yeah. and are therefore opting for private health insurance as a way of getting around those waiting lists. Why we have those waiting lists, I would say, is probably grounded in um, the lack of political decision-making to advance reforms I I in the North. Yeah. Um, in the South, by comparison, I think that there is um, an appreciation of the disparities which are grounded in the way in which healthcare has been uh, funded in the past yeah. and a desire as the state has become wealthier and more um, more receptive to the need to address inequalities and um, to widen the, the access which is afforded so you can see things such as the, 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 the universal provision for I think it's under sixes um, and that's part of what I would imagine will be an ongoing program to widen access across services. Yeah, one thing that strikes me though is like it it sort of highlights the trade-offs. So if you can increase access, does it put a greater load and leads to greater waiting lists, and then people get frustrated with that, and or like it can. At, at least frustrated, if not worse. Absolutely. I mean, you can't work on demand side without working on supply side. Yeah. And both in both jurisdictions at the minute, a key issue is supply side issues. Yeah. So the workforce principally, it's, I mean, in some respects, you can open a hospital relatively quickly. It's having the staff to actually um, deliver the care in that hospital, which is the, which is the challenge. Yeah. Because bear in mind that for a 
uh, a GP or a nurse or a consultant, you'll have to wait, you know, four, five, eight, ten years before they're actually through their training. Yeah. So you have to look down the down the line as to what the needs are likely to be for the population, what you can afford to deliver. So there's going to be a fair amount of economic projection going on in relation to that, so that you can actually fund the places to train those people so that they're available to deliver the car that you actually want to deliver. But you're you're correct that you can't look at one side demand or need uh, without looking at the other and your ability to actually expand capacity to deliver that. And there's a further complication in there as well because of healthcare technologies develop quite quickly. It may not seem that, but they do actually develop quite quickly. And what it's possible to do 10 years from now may be dramatically different to what it's possible to do now. And also the challenges that you face at a particular point in time, such as the COVID pandemic, yeah. very hard to predict. You don't know what's going to be down the line. I mean, one of the good things about an NHS-type system, so if you're looking at differences between North and South, one of the differences between North and South is that there exists in the North a unique health care number, health and care number. So each individual's use of care is recorded and then you can look across the different aspects of care and across the lifetime to see what their use of care was. Mm-hmm. Now that's great for research purposes for people like me, but more importantly it's great in order to actually plan the use of services. So for example, um, when you are confronted with something like the COVID pandemic, you know how many people you have, you know what their care number is, and if you relate their care number to them being given a vaccine, you know how many people who have in actual fact had vaccines, when they've had the vaccines, and also then you can track through to see what the impact of the vaccine is in their subsequent use of care. A challenge in the system in the South is you do not have currently the equivalent of a health and care number. So planning population health is more challenging because of that. Now, there have been various efforts to try and address that, is my understanding, in the the South, and there have been arguments for the use of the PPS number, for example. Um, But as far as I'm aware, currently they're still not doing that, and that will present a challenge to the system. So if, if we spin out of Ireland for, for a second, north and south, and you look at the, the performance of the US healthcare system, which isn't one system, it's a multitude of systems across the different states, mm-hmm. one of the things that I've seen mentioned is that their system didn't perform as well because they didn't have a unified system. And you had one state trying to you know, beggar my neighbour in terms of access to PPE or other you know, staff or, or, or whatever in terms of meeting the pandemic. And then that's replicated across um, different, um, different healthcare uh, uh, needs. And then just thinking about the South, so it's a system that's there's a lot of people paying out of pocket, that sort of thing. And it's more like an expanding public provision how is that progressing or have any insight into how that's I don't know like uh, you're probably more familiar with the north it, no, it was a culture shock to me so as you know I worked in NUI Galway for, for a number of years yeah. until 20, 2016 and whenever I went to um, to the west of Ireland to work there it was a genuine culture shock to me yeah. both the prevalence of private health insurance and the way in which private health insurance was being used yeah. so in the north I was just used at that stage to virtually no one having private health insurance or at least any meaningful private health insurance some people would have carried it for dental purposes for example but not not for the uses to which is currently being put to in the north now so it was a culture shock to me and i remember being involved in the debate it could have been around 2008 2009 um, where we were going through the different types of healthcare systems and different ways in which uh, they were funded and and delivered and i think at that stage the only person either in the audience or on the, the, the panel who was in favour of a national health type service was me. Right. Everyone was totally bought into um, a system in which publicly funded care and publicly delivered care yeah. would be limited to those who were disadvantaged economically, but there would be a role for private health insurance. Yeah. And among the staff... Um, I remember in NUI Galway, virtually everyone had private health insurance to cover things like maternity, if, yeah. if nothing else. Whereas in the north, that just wasn't the case. Yeah. So it's a cultural thing. It's also, I think, what you're actually used to. And until someone questions you as to, well, why are you doing it that way? Um, you don't think necessarily about doing it a different way. 
No, it definitely is a cultural thing because I'm the I'm the opposite. I'm gr- I grew up yeah, used to paying out of pocket, so it is it is a different scenario. And and I remember when I was in Oxford the first time I ever experienced like well, apart from going to A and E, like a triage system was when I was there, and they and the, a proper like triage system. But um, well, uh, let me share an anecdote with you that yeah. maybe illustrates it. Uh, so, and again, this talks to where the systems work well and don't work well. So at one stage, I had an infection, and I was. Um, traveling up and down between the two between Galway and Belfast and I tried to make an appointment to see my GP in Belfast so publicly funded system um, universal access, everything should be fine and I was told because it was non-emergency I would have to be, wait three weeks before I could see the GP yeah. so I was going to be in Galway the next day and when I got to Galway I phoned the GP there and they said are you public or private? I said well private and they said I can see you in about two hours if that if that's okay, so of course I went to see the GP there. Yeah. Now I sp- continue on the anecdote because for the infection I needed a, a, a cream. Uh, it was a, a, a an infection in the eye, and the cream in the north would have been prescribed without a prescription charge. Yeah. In the south there was a prescription charge associated with it. Yeah. The only thing is I didn't know that. So whenever I went to collect my script, so I had the, the, the script from the doctor, I went in, collected it, and walked out of, the, out of the pharmacist, and then thought, I wonder if I was I supposed to pay for that? And then, <laughs> went, and then went back in. <laughs> Unfortunately, they were very forgiving. So that's, again, you know, so the, in terms of speed of access, yeah. the existence of charges in the South maybe does reduce um, what might be seen as access for trivial purposes, whereas that wouldn't be the case in the North. If you have universal access, is there a way we have to put in mechanisms to make sure people sort of think, do their due diligence before going and making sure that they go when, when they, sort of, they sort of have to go? It, it's really difficult. So, um, I mean, the way in which it would be, so if you put in a charge, that's one way of restricting access and people will then think, well, hold on, this isn't a free service. Yeah. Literally not free to me because I will have to pay that. But that then is going to differentially impact upon those who are economically disadvantaged. Sure. And you don't know um, ex ante whether or not your need for care is trivial or not trivial or relatively minor or not relatively minor and you can see this or at least I think of this in terms of um, uh, a, a young child for example so you don't know if this fever can be treated with Calpol or if it's something which is more serious yeah. so if you're of a nervous disposition or you're, you don't like the um, you don't like the risks, especially when it's not for a, a young child who can deteriorate very quickly. You're more likely to go to the GP. And in that situation, having a charge as a way of choking off supply, or sorry, choking off demand, may not be such a good idea. Yeah. And again, I can see this, um, this is only anecdotal, but um, I can see this in the way in which GP appointments actually work in the North. So that um, in my own case, yeah. it's you can wait three weeks. That's yeah. fine, but if my wife phones up about the child having a fever or something like that, they'll get an emergency appointment and be seen quite quickly by the GP. Yeah. And the GPs, to my mind, I think, use that sort of discretion to triage patients. Yeah. You know, some middle-aged donkey like me can wait. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Another thing I've noticed, now this is pure anecdotal evidence, but when I went to the doctor when I was in Oxford, it was a very quick affair, it was in out you know, we've more we've other things to do. When I went to the doctor at home, um, it's almost like you have to get bang for your buck. You're in there to tell you a story, and you're there for half. You have a half an hour slot, and they use it up. So, no, that's not always the case, and that's that's very much a generalization. But but I, but I think <laughs> that is actually uh, I, again whenever we're talking about the application of economics to health and health behaviours what I would suggest is because I imagine that what you were paying your GP was no different to what someone else was paying their GP down the road but what they the GPs would therefore not compete upon price but what they might compete on is um, the 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 non uh, what do you call it the quality of the car that they actually deliver and one way in which they can deliver higher quality car is to hold Ah. on to you longer so a longer consultation with more chat in it um, might encourage you to come back uh, again in the future yeah interesting wow I never thought that dynamic would play out in terms of healthcare yeah Uh, no that is very interesting um okay so that's okay we talked a lot about the structure I suppose the two different systems is there any 
I know you, you did a report with colleagues at the SRI. Any sort of interesting insights in terms of outcomes and how they vary in terms of... So what I find interesting, and this is where I say the uh, the existence of the border provides a the opportunity to exploit natural experiments. What I find interesting isn't so much the snapshots mm -hmm. that you can get at a particular point in time. So you'll see in that ESRI report that was uh, uh, led by uh, Sheila Connolly, and you'll see that this is what we see with respect to diabetic patients, for example, in terms of the, the number of consultations or in terms of those who present with um, in what their utilisation of GP care is north and south. But rather, and again, this is actually picked up in, in that report, but rather how things change over time. Right. So in terms of health outcomes, um, Ireland has actually improved dramatically over time relative to not just Northern Ireland, but relative to um, the, the other parts of the UK. And the statistics are, are covered in that, and, and I can't remember all of them, which is why I'm not going to reference no, them. But you'll see things like, um, relatively speaking, infant mortality rate falling faster in the Republic, and life expectancy increasing faster, and self-reported health being better, and disability life years being better in the Republic. But it's linked to the, I think, it's linked to the economic growth that, the differential economic growth yeah. that the South has enjoyed relative to the North over time. And you can see that flip over around 2003, 4, 5, something like that. And another work which isn't covered in that report, again, is a colleague from LSE uh, who originally was from, um, I think originally from Donegal, he was looking at mortality amenable to healthcare and again demonstrated, now this was um, pre-financial pre crisis, but that Ireland was the country which was making the greatest advances in terms of you know, what the healthcare system could actually do as a result of the investments which were being made in it. So both from the social determinants of health and in terms of how the healthcare was actually being used and being delivered in the Republic, it was, it was doing a lot better compared to a lot of its international comparators. Yeah, it's, yeah. when you're, when you're saying that, it did sound like it was a, an income-related effect. People are more conscious of, of that's what I, that, looking after that, their health. That, that's what I think. No, I, I think it's, it's a combination of things in the sense that maybe the culture is different. Now, as I, as I say, you do have a slightly different age distribution. But I think that as incomes and uh, the standard of living have improved in the South, relatively faster than they have in the north it has had a, 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 a payoff in terms of the health which people have enjoyed and in terms of their self-reported uh, experience of health relative relative to the north and there may also be an element in there of sort of a healthy migrant effect um, where again the south uh, is has greater opportunities yeah. for migrants moving in and then that feeds into what the average is that you're experiencing there relative yeah. relative to here. Yeah, you bring in people who are, I suppose, well, if they're coming to work in multinationals, they're going to be, on average, educated and then they're more... Better educated. Look after their um, health. They're also so better educated and uh, coming for uh, good earnings. Yeah. Um, and also then the, the notion of that healthy migrant effect is that those are the individuals who are able to move from the country that they're coming from, you know, and they're you're able to do that. You yeah, they have, they have that impetus. Standard. They have that drive behind them, and they're and they're in a, a physical and, and mental position yeah. to actually to make that jump. Yeah, very interesting. Um, one thing. So we sort of touched on, I suppose, looking forward into the future of the two systems, and you touched on the art, like in, in the south, we have a move towards a more public system. That's more like the slauncher care idea, where um, I suppose eventually, imagine it's going to converge in something like public health system when all is said and done. Um, but in terms of going, what's the future for the North? And you're saying there's a lot of people moving towards taking up private provision of different services, perhaps through frustration because of long waiting lists. <laughs> what's the solution there? What's the prognosis? The statistics here are stark. You know, not only do we have the longest waiting lists of any part of the UK, um, but those waiting lists have increased. And that's not just the effects of the pandemic. So if you look from 2013 or even before, you'll see our uh, waiting times, waiting lists uh, increasing and increasing dramatically. Um, and to, to the extent that, you know, for, for, for some special specialisms, it almost amounts to a denial of care. So some people are on a waiting list for seven years. Yeah. And if you're on a waiting list for seven years, 
that just means you're not getting care. Yeah. Um, so things things have got worse and worse over time, and to the point now, as I say, the impression that I have is that the public or large swathes of the public have actually lost or are losing confidence in, in, in the system. They're not seeing the GP the way in which they would like to see the GP. So GPs during the COVID pandemic actually moved to a telephone triage system, yeah. even though we didn't have a telephone triage system that they could move to. So yes. it, was, it was invented on the hoof, as it were. Yeah. And now the GPs say that they're going to continue doing that. Okay. So the way in which care is being delivered is not the way that the public would necessarily want to actually experience that care and until recent times would not be the way in which they were experiencing that care. So crises are enforcing the system to react in a particular way without necessarily the plans being in place for it to deliver it in that way. And again, you can see this in the way in which some of our hospital departments are being inundated and then the... the the implications of that, the domino effect that that has uh, throughout the system. So if we don't have the beds for people to be admitted to, then people are uh, being stockpiled, as it were, in our ED departments. When the ED, ED departments overspill, then they're being held in ambulances until they can actually get into the ED and then uh, you know, on into on into a hospital bed. And then that has implications for the you know the emergency services. So it just cascades right the way throughout the system, and. I think that it's grounded in um, the lack of progress in enacting the reforms that we know that we have had to enact for at least 20 years, yeah. and there just has not been the political will to, in order to, to grasp the nettle to make those political decisions. Sure. And so what sort of reform? Is it like a more efficient use of resources? Is that the type of reform? or I, 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 It's a simplistic characterization of it, but I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll give you the example as I see it. So we go back to... Um, so Northern Ireland has had seven fundamental reforms... Or, sorry, seven fundamental reviews of the healthcare system over the past 21, 22 years. The conclusions of the first very much mirror the conclusions of the seventh... Um, okay. which was that we have an oversupply of and overdependence upon care delivered through a hospital mechanism. Right. Okay. So we have too many hospitals and too much depends upon our hospital care. And that then means, because those are not properly resourced, that we can't in actual fact continue to, to meet the demands of our population. So here's, the, here's where it feeds back then into the political decision-making. If you have politicians who are making decisions about which hospital is going to be closed, the way in which this was, and it's an anecdote, but it's, it's, it's literally what I heard um, said at a health committee meeting when it was given evidence to it. One MLA uh, said, we all know what we have to do, but I'm not going to close a hospital in my constituency or agree to one being closed in my constituency. And if I look across at, and he pointed to another MLA, he's not going to agree to being closed in his constituency so we don't close any hospitals yeah. and we trundle on until the next until the next decision has to be made or the next crisis sure. uh, arises so that's what is the nub of the issue right okay okay and so i suppose you have to we have to close certain hospitals but that frees up resources to be allocated to certain ser other services is that the idea that's exactly it so if you concentrate services now the the, the health minister in the north would say you don't have to close hospitals but he's saying close hospitals by another name in the sense that if you concentrate hospital or concentrate services in particular areas, um, you'll get economies of scale associated yeah. with that. If you don't do that, you have care being delivered inefficiently across mul multiple sites with much lower throughput and all of the, all of the, the, the waste associated, associated yeah. with that. But it's making that transition over okay. um, where you do concentrate services on a smaller number of sites to achieve the efficiencies, and the efficiencies aren't just about um, uh, capital, um, or not just about administration. Yeah. It's the efficiencies in terms of your ability to bring together a critical mass of clinical services in order to deliver those those, yeah. those services, to avoid having to buy in locums and agencies in order to, to cover what we would refer to as the stochastic economies of okay. scale, you know, where someone goes off or someone leaves where you reduce the turnover, where you make the, the, the working conditions more attractive. Yeah. 
yeah. you know, if you would, were the only economist working in a particular place, um, I know, yeah. things going to leave. Yeah, that's it. That's it. And so uh, that's sort of what happens in the south, isn't it? So like, if you have a head injury, you go to Beaumont, or if you've, I think, in Galway, isn't there a cancer unit there or something like that? Uh, so that sort of idea, I suppose, which makes a lot of sense. But the south isn't that much different in that respect. So yeah. I was in a meeting maybe a couple of weeks ago uh, in Dublin, and it was interesting. This was when we were just talking around the, the edges of the meeting. Yeah. They were talking about the same things, that you know there would be uh, it would be political suicide to try and close a hospital in a particular constituency. Yeah. Some, so whenever you're doing a, a, a reorganisation, there may be some places which... That are off limits in now terms that you of mention it. it yeah that has happened I know I remember Roscommon Hospital was one such example of that that uh, when that was closed there was a local like naturally enough there was a lot of local pushback but then politician anyway he lost the party whip as a result of it because of because of this yeah but he kept his seat like this so a similar type of idea yeah but it, it can move I think it can move better in the south than it can in the north where every election yeah. is viewed as an existential threat Sure. to the existence of the state yeah so it's almost and it's portrayed in that way as a way of encouraging the voters to come out so the the stakes are seen as higher when in actual fact you know the the, the position of northern ireland is yeah. never going to be determined solely by a vote of of you know for, for for mls or anything like that i've sort of covered everything that i can think of here i don't know if there's anything else that you wanted to mention or certainly whenever i look at compared to what it was let's see, 30 odd years ago, whenever I started doing health economics, you have a much more vibrant community of economists who are working in the area. And that's great to see. Yeah. And it's great to see the way in which, actually in the South in particular, that community has grown and flourished and has provided the opportunity for um, inward investment. So it, it does not only help the state address the needs of the population there by creating a cadre of individuals to whom it can turn to for advice, yeah. or if not advice, then at least who can act as critical external um, scrutinizers of what, of what the state's doing. But it also creates an opportunity then for, as I say, uh, for companies to come in. So big pharma can come in or medical device technologies can come in and you know, locate um, their their um, global offices there to do that yeah. sort of work, which yeah. which which is great. No, it is great. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thanks, Kieran. That was great. Very interesting. You and I, I look forward to hearing what the edited version of this is actually like. Yeah, hopefully. Well, there won't be too many edits. I don't think. Anyway, thanks very much. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.